Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, how young people are tackling climate change from a Jacksonville hub. The group is called Global Shapers, and it's part of a worldwide network of young organizers focused on community change. A little bit later in the program, we'll answer your health questions with our own in-house expert, Dr. Joe Servin. But first, I'm joined in studio by Casey Roth, co-founder of the Jacksonville Global Shapers Hub. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. And Alpheus Hansen, the group's deputy treasurer. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Casey, tell us a little bit about what Global Shapers does and what it hopes to do. Yeah, so Global Shapers Jacksonville, like you mentioned earlier, is part of a global network of about 505 other hubs throughout the world. And we kind of stylize ourselves as a cross-partisan, youth-led, completely volunteer-based nonprofit. Um, And we're all about nurturing um, the growth and latent potential that we see here in Jacksonville. And mainly kind of underpinned by this belief that young people should be at that forefront and young people should be challenging the status quo, leading, co-creating alongside other stakeholders in the community and ultimately tying together the Jacksonville community that's as diverse, I suppose, as you can say, as it is dynamic. And now some of the, you want to kind of dive into what we've done in the past? Sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. So we, how can I start? How about, well, here, I'll start with this. The way we began is August 2020, a fantastic time to start anything (laughs) in the world. It was great, a challenging time, a lot of uncertainty. And Pascal Rathley, our founding curator, uh, he he and I were chit-chatting over at the Bold Bean in San Marco. Um, Rest in peace, San Marco Bold Bean. Miss you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, we, you know, he had this idea. He's like, hey, you know, how, how about we bring together a bunch of service-minded young rapscallions with a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit um, and not just for the sake of networking and not just for the sake of doing what I might call voluntourism, but to actually take that latent potential in all the young folk around here and Explain what you mean by voluntourism. That's an interesting term. Oh, voluntourism? Um, when I think, so that's kind of my terminology. <laughs> when, I, when I think of that, I think of like folks that, or, or opportunities where you can go and feel like you're making a difference. Like not, not to disparage, you know, a little bit of helping here, like a, like a little park cleanup here and there. But that's what I mean. Like, so some folks might go and travel abroad and engage in some sort of help that might seem like it's helping the community. But the, but the mistake there that really qualifies it as volunteerism is when you're not asking and engaging with the community that is experiencing those issues. So what, we did not want to do that. We wanted to you know, engage the community and not only um, communicate with them and ask what they need to be done, but actually bring them in and make <clears throat> make them a part of our hub. I want to bring uh, Alpheus into the conversation. Um, so how, when did you join Global Shapers and what did you bring to it in terms of your desires, your interest in community involvement? Absolutely. So I joined uh, Global Shapers in August of 2023. Um, I was previously a G7 youth delegate and a lot of the work that I was doing, I wanted to be able to continue that in a way that was impacting the community and kind of still touching the lives of, of youth, young professionals. Um, I met Pascal uh, in the summer of 2023. Uh, he introduced me to the, to the uh, Jacksonville Global Shapers. But I originally came across the Jacksonville Global Shapers or the Global Shapers uh, more generally um, when I was watching a interview with a participant at Davos. And he mentioned kind of just the shapers in general. I looked into it. I said, you know, this is very interesting. This is something that I want to get involved with. I think the, the global nature of it is an absolutely incredible opportunity to continue like, connecting the global aspect to the local aspect and figuring out how to continue building 
from from there. And so you were a youth delegate to the to the G7. It's the U7, I guess. Yes. Explain uh, how Y7. you got involved. What is what is that? What do they do? And how did you become part of it? Yes, the Youth Seven is an official advisory body uh, to the G7. And the way I got involved basically was was look, just doing some research online um, and kind of talking to some of the previous delegates about what they're looking for, the skills that you need um, to be successful there. I applied, was fortunate enough to be selected, and then I represented the United States youth um, in Tokyo, Japan, uh, last April in the Y7 Summit in the area of economics and peace and security. And so the, the Y7 prepares report for the G7, is that kind of the youth recommendations for that larger body? Yes, it, it comes in the form of a communique, but part of that communique, what informs that communique uh, is going to be outreach to youth, um, a survey that we put together. Uh, but really, I, I found that the most fulfilling aspect of that is very similar to the Global Shapers, is you're connecting with, with youth, you're connecting with the community, and finding ways to do that is actually what is most fulfilling about both the Y7 and the Global Shapers. And the Global Shapers is somewhat an outgrowth of the World Economic Forum. Can you explain kind of how that relationship developed, how that was established? Yes. Um, I think, you know, from the from the get-go, when, uh, when Casey and, and Pascal really started this, I think that um, they were very diligent in making connections in the community. The relationship with the World Economic Forum is mostly in, as, as kind of like we're, we're really an auxiliary um, type of hub. There's, as Casey mentioned, there's hundreds of other hubs around the world. And, you know, us being a nonprofit, we're able to um, kind of really, I, I think the, de uh, the designation there is just the fact that um, we're focused on youth. We're in the United States. We, uh, you know, the curator, um, kind of our uh, president of the organization, will go to trainings in, um, in Geneva every year. Um, there's amazing opportunities for uh, the, the youth in, every, or in the specific hubs to engage in these opportunities kind of sometimes sponsored by the World Economic Forum, yes. So we're talking to two leaders of Global Shapers Jacksonville about the role that young people are playing in tackling climate change. You can join our conversation by giving us a call at 904-549-2937. You can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can tag us on X at FCC on Air. Um, I was interested to see, uh, you, you alluded to the fact that there's these groups, Casey, um, all over the world, but they're really, truly, I mean, Nairobi, Munich, Caracas, uh, Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really yeah. is a great diversity of um, hub locations. Mm -hmm. So how does Jacksonville fit into that larger picture? Oh, I love that question there. I, I you, you bring back some lovely memories of when I was in Geneva and got to experience and meet all these young leaders from almost every country on the planet. And I'll say, like, never, never had I felt more like a global citizen. And so to bring it back to Jacksonville, you know, we wanted to, if we're going to contribute to this community flourishing through local action, we figured, why not bring in some global insights? And Jacksonville is uniquely positioned in this country. You know, we're right along the, the backbones of I-95 and I-10. We have logistics, healthcare, fintech, you name it. And there are, you know, so many young professionals see this city as a transient place. They don't see it as a place where they're going to make their mark. This is the beginning of their journey. And so we figured, how about we revitalize that a little bit? We bring the world to Jacksonville and then we bring Jacksonville to the world. So that was kind of our hope. And if I could jump in sure. very quickly, I think you know, Jacksonville being the largest city in the United States, we wanted to take more of a leadership role. And so right now, what mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're doing kind of to connect Jacksonville to the world and vice versa is we're leading this uh, social impact consultancy project with 11 other hubs from seven different countries. Uh, and really what it is, is we're collaborating on best practices to be able to bring talents and skills um, of youth to excuse me, two small and medium-sized enterprises uh, in and around Jacksonville. And where are those other ones that this particular consultancy project is, is working with? We have Boston. We have hubs in Austria, India. Um, we have hubs, uh, the Shenzhen hub in China. 
Um, and then there's there's some hubs uh, from the Middle East as well. Um, we've got a call, Eric, in Arlington. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Uh, yeah, my uh, comment or question is sort of a nuts and bolts thing. Um, near my work, I've noticed there's a brand new subdivision that went up. And it's about maybe 40 or 50 homes. Um, and I didn't see, there's not one single solar panel on any roof there. Um, there are no trees to obstruct. Uh, they cut down all the trees before they built anything. And I'm just wondering, when are we going to get serious? We have a progressive mayor now, and we're just not serious about climate change and about uh, making these changes. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate your call. Um, what about that? I mean, you you have chosen climate change as a key focus or, or perhaps the main focus of the hub here in Jacksonville for Global Shapers. Mm-hmm. Um do you get involved in those kind of granular level um, issues? Like, are we putting enough solar panels on new housing? Or, or what approach do you take to the issue of climate change locally? Well, here, I'll, I'll start this off and I'll pass it right to Alphaeus because he's leading some current initiatives. But we had the, first of all, thanks for that question. We had the same exact curiosity, as a matter of fact. And we began a partnership with the Climate Reality Project, which is a national organization that's based in D.C., founded by Al Gore, and we submitted to join one of their project incubators. And we actually ended up winning about $3,000 to begin and uh, to begin our what, what we call our Climate Conversations Workshop. And I'll, I'll pass it to you, Alphaeus. Yes, yeah, certainly. And the, and the Climate Conversations is really about educating the community to, to the point in the question. I think what we're going to, to do further here with the Social Impact Consultancy is to build the capacity the capability of uh, organizations, organizations in Jacksonville to be able to do exactly what the gentleman just just mentioned. So we are looking to bring, um, we're looking to basically increase the capability of, of organizations by draft, helping them draft outreach to put them in connection with organizations, other partners to make, uh, it, you know, to to basically increase the capacity and move us forward to to more of a net zero. Uh, net carbon or carbon give, zero. Give yes. an example, if you can, of like a of a uh, agency or enterprise that you might reach out to mm-hmm. with the consultancy. So Renew Jacksonville is one um, organization that we were in conversation with, um, and what we're trying to do, uh, we we haven't finalized our our kind of our uh, agreement there yet, but what we're trying to do is basically expand the climate. I guess you could say the climate solutions present to the community, as the gentleman mentioned, um, solar panels. That's something that um, Renew Jacksonville is pretty um, passionate about. And so I believe that by partnering with them and partnering with organizations like Renew Jacksonville, already doing impactful um, things in the community, we can augment and increase and scale some of those operations that they're doing to actually have an impact. And that's kind of really what we're about. So talk to me about the youth element of this. Um, this is a group that is primarily, uh, what, 18 to 27 year olds? Yes, 18 to 27. And you actually age out at 30? You I mean, do. You get I aged out. out. Okay. <laughs> I'm old news, y'all. And I mean, the, the reason, and to go back to your question earlier about why the World Economic Forum saw that this is something important to do. Before Global Shapers, they had this thing called the YGL, the Young Global Leaders, which, you know, they they would partner to edify and pour into folks 30, 40, et cetera. But then they realized, you know, 50% of the world's population is below the age of 30. That's a, that's a lot of percent right there. <laughs> and so uh, it would behoove them and us to really hone in and and you know, partner alongside and build the leadership capacity of folks in that age range. You know, I think of, I, I have some examples here that I looked up, you know, you have Louis Von Ahn, who co-founded Duolingo in his early 30s. Uh, you have, you know, uh, Malala Yousafzai, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, who the Taliban tried to assassinate. She ended up founding the Malala Fund to support girls' education. She was 17 years old. She'd be too... At that time, she would have been too young to join the Jacksonville Global Shapers, Global Shapers Hub. So all that to say, there's so much potential 
that we'd be missing out on to help our community flourish if we were not partnering with right. the youth. Right. And that that's exactly why we have an open rolling application, yeah. right? We are looking for um, ambitious, passionate youth in and around Jacksonville to come in and, and give back. But what we're also trying to do is we're also trying to develop leadership opportunities for them by within the hub, by um, placing them in, in positions within the hub to increase the agency and to be able to ideate in an environment that is not as maybe strict as their workplace and give them an opportunity to build those skills that they want to build to advance their professional life and their personal life um, and help basically help them do that in the hub. And that's something that we're pretty passionate about. Yes. So, so like, let's talk specifically about climate change initiatives. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're doing to um, have people in the hub, you know, talk about climate change or produce specific results when it comes to climate change? Exactly. The Climate Conver climate Conversations Project is exactly that. Um, we partner with uh, the University of North Florida. We also partner with the uh, Jacksonville Climate Coalition to bring training to the uh, bring training to the public on how to have difficult conversations around climate, solutions focused. Right. We we worked with um, Lauren Watkins. She's she was the uh, director at uh, Impact by Design, and um, she also kind of did a lot of studies around uh, climate change and how to change the conversation um, to being to, to shift from causal, <clears throat> focused on the causes of climate change, to focus on the solutions and how to bring some of those solutions. And, and her solution, right, the, the focus is uh, having a formidable, form, formidable um, kind of dialogue around basically the solutions, exactly that, uh, the solutions to climate change, yes. And so what do, if people want to get involved, how do they go about doing that? Oh, well, they could, uh, you can come to our Instagram, our LinkedIn, um, look us, uh, look up our website, uh, globalshaversjacks.com, mm -hmm. uh, or .org, I believe, sorry. And, um, and Al, you, you, you got the business card out. Yes. Um, we have a, we have an email, jacksonville.shapers at gmail.com. Uh, we have our Instagram, we have a LinkedIn. Um, our website is globalshapers.org slash hubs slash Jacksonville Hub. Yes. All right. Um, and this is, again, for people who are 17 or so to 27? Correct. All right. Well, Alphaeus Hansen and Casey Roth, thank you so much for being here and talking about Global Shapers Mission. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you for having us. And we'll be back in just a minute. We're talking to our own in-house neurologist, Dr. Joe Servin, who's going to answer your healthcare questions for our inaugural House Calls with Dr. Joe segment. Welcome back. Well, it started as so many things do these days with a tweet from Elon Musk. Last Monday, the world's wealthiest man announced his company, Neuralink, had implanted a brain reading device into a human subject. We're going to talk about that and much more with neurologist and healthcare science professor, Dr. Joe Servan. He's here to take your health and healthcare questions as he will the first Monday of each month. First up, Dr. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. And this is such a pleasure to be joining uh, you on Monday mornings. At C we'll, we'll promote a healthy Monday for the rest of the week. Oh, excellent. And for the rest of the month. <laughs> so um, faithful listeners will be familiar with your show, What's Health Got to Do With It, that airs every Saturday at, at 4 p.m. Um, one thing that you're going to do for us that you're not able to do on that show is to take calls and That's take right. people's questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Joe, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. 
or you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook or Instagram or tag us on X at FCC on air. Um, Dr. Joe, talk a little bit about the program that you already do, that what's health got to do with it. For people who may not have heard, um, it really is wide open in terms of topics. Yeah, and it's a, a show really designed to talk about how do we navigate not just the science of medicine, which we can get in a lot of places, but the healthcare system. Uh, how do you make the system work for you because one thing I've learned over my years of practice, we're there to take care of people. We want to help. Uh, and doctors and nurses and all the other folks are there with all that knowledge to like, you know, write the prescription, do the treatment, do whatever. But what's changed over the years I've done this is that more and more of the questions are how do I navigate the system to get the treatment that you just offered me? And I find that's what you spend more time discussing. Uh, what happens when there's a drug shortage? What, do you, what happens when there's no prescription? What about that law they just passed? And so that's what the show tries to help, not is connect the science, the health, but the healthcare system, which has now become the new person in the room with us. It really is, can be a very Byzantine for people who are trying to navigate it, find a way, afford it. I don't even know. I think you. that's why they have no degrees uh, to get people to know this is, this is the system. This is the, this is the people making policy that actually directly impacts your health, the insurance companies, uh, the industry behind it. You almost have to know all that these days, in, especially if you have a chronic, complicated condition. So that's what the show's hoping to, to really help uncover week in, week out. And so House Calls with Dr. Joe will give us a chance to really connect directly with people who may have those questions. Exactly. And I mean, although, I, and, and this is my warning, I can't practice medicine over the radio, Just uh, but, but if there's a way to kind of guide or at least say, hey, you know, take a look at this, or did you think of that, that may be something that we can do. So please give us a call if you do have questions uh, or you can reach out on social media. Um, I do want to talk about this brain implant <laughs> yes. technology because yes. it is just um, wild, right? Uh, you're that I let's insert whatever synonym for wild, but I'll go with wild. It, it is startling on one level and uh, because it's such promise of how far we've come. But there's this other part of me that says, Oh my God, <laughs> we've arrived here. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, intersection. But for those people where this could benefit, uh, this is this is incredible. Yeah, you're a neurologist. This is tapping into specifically that kind of science. So explain to us what this kind of implant can do um, from a neurological standpoint. Well, first, what we can say is that. Uh, one of the difficulties in talking about this is that the discovery itself is somewhat enshrouded in mystery. We haven't seen the first patient. The trial in which this is being done, which by their brochure is for individuals who have quadriplegia, that means that they're paralyzed, or have ALS because they can't move muscles. And the concept is that they have this chip that's tiny, that is implanted within the brain robotically and it can lead to movements by your own thought. You don't talk, you don't say it. Wirelessly has this interface that will move the arm, move whatever based on your thought, not you saying it. And that, that to me is, as I'm saying this and looking at you, telling you, I'm like, my goodness, uh, it's incredible, and and that's a game changer. But we don't know the details, and that's the part that's difficult because most trials of this uh, in the U.S. Uh, there are two things that need to be done. One is the F has to be registered with the FDA, so we know that the FDA knows what's going on because they have the power to stop it if it's unsafe. The other thing, which is voluntary, something called clinicaltrials.gov. And that is a registry of all trials done in the United States. And in fact, if you want to publish it in a reputable medical journal, those journals require that the trial have been listed. You have to, yeah. It's not listed, not which could mean that um, they just want to do it with the FDA 
or it could mean it's in another country. We've got a call, Mark from the West Side. Good morning, Mark. Welcome to First Coast Connect, and welcome to House Calls with Dr. Joe. Good morning. I'm a registered nurse. I've been one for 15 years now. And my question is, about five years ago, California and a couple other Western states held this big voter referendum that uh, mandated uh, hospitals have certain requirements of their nurses and caregivers uh, in their hospitals regarding to patients. Like you couldn't be one nurse and have 20 patients. You could only, yeah, and they had certain acuity levels and things like that. And it was fought tooth and nail by large hospitals over there, but it eventually passed, and that was four or five years ago. And I was just wondering if uh, there's been any studies done that you know about where it said that uh, the patient outcomes uh, were better in their Mm -hmm. hospitals over there than ours over here, or they were getting less, you know, uh, hospital-acquired infections over there than here, you know, that kind of thing. I just wondered if you had been any studies on that. Good question. Mark, that is a great question. And and we've covered facets of this because the California law is one of the first in the country to mandate a very specific patient nurse ratio in the hospital for the sake for the sake of safety, as you as you pointed out, so that you don't have one nurse taking care of 25, 30 patients and you have all these safety concerns and stuff like that. But it's the first law, and we don't know. I'm I'm going to just speak uh, off on online in terms of the studies itself. I don't know of the studies exactly that have kind of addressed what happens. But intuitively, I would assume the smaller the ratio, the higher the care. Sure. Now I'm I'm sure that where where the all the big hospital players and insurance companies where they got nervous was because the moment you start uh, doing that, that means you have to increase your nursing pool. And um, there are shortages about. but And as, costs Oh, it's up, huge. Sure, and right. then, so that's the key. But I would say that any, any from my, when I look at anything related to patient outcomes, uh, the lower the patient-nurse ratio, the better for patient care for two reasons. Number one, the nurse has the ability to care for their patient in the way they need to. And number two, you're not burning out that, that individual. Cause that's what happens. They just want to, I mean, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, everyone, they just want to do their practice. Mm-hmm. But when the numbers and stuff like that goes crazy, it, it's not right. Uh, everyone's watching this California law. And I will say that uh, curiously, uh, what I do know is that suddenly there's a lot of nurses that want to practice in California. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. Um, have you heard, this is just my own curiosity, about the, the nursing shortage um, forcing some providers to backfill those places with people that are maybe lower level um, trainees or not quite RNs, you know, that some of those duties would now be done by people who don't have that level of training? Yeah, that that is probably something uh, they can't do like RN based work based on what RNs must be licensed to do. In other words, if if the state or the federal government says you must have a nurse and the nurse can only do this, that's all they can do that the nurse can do. If it is not a nurse, they have to live within a scope of practice. But can they train them to do pieces of the work? Sure. And is there backfilling? I'd be a liar if I told you that there isn't. Uh, right. there, there, that's that's how they survive, if you will, when there are these nursing shortages. But you are, but there are these barriers, if you will, maybe not barriers, but just kind of fine lines of what scope of practice is. In other words, you can't do things that you're not licensed to do. So if you don't have a nursing license and a nurse is, is by law can do this, you can't just get someone off the street and do it. But you can train for those things that, are not specified in that uh, what what their scope of work is kind of around the it. margins that exactly. they can help out with. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got an email. Uh, someone is asking, what are some free health and mental health options for labor workers? Wow, that's a great question. I always kind of for places like that. What I uh, for those type of questions, what I love to do is I like to send them uh, to. There are these great websites, particularly run through the NIH. 
Um, and, um, and in this case, I would imagine for, for labor, uh, OSHA, which is uh, an organization that's devoted to occupational safety and health, these government websites, they are a treasure trove of information that have been carefully vetted. And oftentimes people don't know about these things. Primarily because they don't get marketed. Uh, that uh, we don't have Gwyneth Paltrow uh, putting her name on on any of these great uh, notes or anything along those lines, or other celebrities. But that's where I would kind of direct you to NIH, OSHA, uh, for things of that sort. And they oftentimes have areas where they cover everything from, uh, you know, how to take care of yourself or things of that sort. They're more explicit to job performance and disability things, but sometimes you'll find things of that sort. So I always uh, send folks to NIH. I send folks to CDC. That's where I start all my searches uh, when I'm looking for information like this, and that might help you as you look for it. Good advice. Um, So I want to return to the topic of these um, neuro implants. You bet. Because they're being used. I mean, they've been used to a certain extent you know, people like Stephen Hawking, who was paralyzed, was able to speak. Um, they can stimulate the brains of Parkinson's patients. Um, it can help paralyzed patients move things. But there's now this discussion of something that's called cognitive liberty or neuro privacy or neuro rights. Describe what is at issue there and why there's some concerns. Well, now we have a technology. And, and if we go back to this particular uh, device... Uh, remember that what is initiating the movement is that you are having a thought. So the question then becomes, uh, can you go down the road of actually reading a thought? Now, there are some very cool, real-world examples of they are, if you're able to do a thought for a movement, you can potentially unravel a thought of music what an image memory and that now suddenly has this question of do i need to protect are those those are mine uh and like if you have a chip there well someone is going to be all that technology is going to be downloaded to some platform and who owns that i mean i think the first question people have is you know how would it be used in the workplace but i was surprised to see that it's actually being used in the workplace in terms of monitoring uh, long-haul truck drivers for uh, fatigue. This gets us to the whole thing of devices and elements that can really monitor so many aspects of your health, from your heart rate to, as you said, fatigue, sleep. Anytime you do, I mean, I I, I assume the good parts of the Apples, Googles, and, and things of the world. But on the other hand, they're sitting on a lot of data that that you're contributing to, that they're using in their technology to monetize for the next big app. And the question is privacy, who owns it, uh, those type of things. And those are very real issues. In the neuro privacy thing, they brought this up to yet one other step. Your thoughts, what what is running in your head, that is absolutely mind-blowing. So that's the type of stuff that we need to catch up with policy-wise, that that is covered by HIPAA. So what you're thinking is belongs to you, which I never thought that we would be talking about, but this is actually happening. Yeah. I mean, and in the clinical setting, you know, HIPAA does protect that privacy, right? So if you're my doctor and you're using that information, you wouldn't be able to repurpose it. But the question, when you have an Elon Musk doing a kind of secret, some (laughs) semi-secret trial, who would own that information? Who would have access? That And that's this is why it gets back to like, you know, why we, we don't know all those details. And I want to point out, we're not at that level where we can actually read someone's thought, but it just we're in the on the road, on the highway that could kind of get to that direction. It reminds me of that uh, first Spider-Man movie with great power comes great responsibility. We just have to make sure that the responsibility part is taken care of. And so there is a push to kind of at least proactively, prophylactically come up with some rules. So I I know there's a foundation, and I think that they're based up in uh, New York, where they are looking to try to codify or create laws that basically say your thoughts belong to you. It sounds like almost so self-evident, but now with this technology, 
not so much. Well, Dr. Joe Servant, thank you so much for being here. Um, we really appreciate it. We're looking forward to this segment. Um, and you can listen to Dr. Joe's program, What's Health Got to Do With It, Saturdays at 4 p.m. or on demand at wjct.org. Thanks, Dr. Joe. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ann. And up next, we're going to talk about honing your storytelling skills for the stage. Welcome back. It's time for our monthly First Coast Connect book club, and we're joined by Stacy Goldring, facilitator of the Chapter and Notes book club. She's also discussing this month's book. Good morning, Stacy. Good morning, Anne. How are you? Uh, good, and it's really nice to have you back and see you again. So the book club, for those who don't know, is held at San Marco Books and More, and it's a book club that's open to everybody. Correct. It's open to anyone who wants to come. And what's great about this book club is you don't even have to read the book. Just show up because you're bound to learn something and you're bound to have something to add to the conversation. It's about establishing a sense of community. And it really is just for people who love books, love reading, maybe just want to connect with other people that have that interest. Yeah. And, you know, it's nice to come into a space where for about an hour and a half, I have one rule, and that is no politics. So I don't, Smart. yeah, we, I don't care your background, not interested for that, you know, hour plus, we're just going to delve into literature and have a really good conversation and an equal exchange of ideas. I like that it's forgiving too, that you don't have to finish the book. It is sometimes hard for people to work that into their schedule and they might be, you know, off put by the sense that they have to accomplish something to get Right. There. No one wants homework. And I'm sorry if you're still of age where you have homework and I really feel sorry for you. Uh, but this is totally optional. Uh, most of the time after the book club is over, people will say, you know what, I want to read it now, which is just so, so lovely. But, you know, a lot of people and they also do audiobooks, which is great because you can, you know, double dip. Yeah. So let's talk about this month's book. Mm -hmm. It's The Awakening mm -hmm. by Kate Chopin. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, this book, uh, it's interesting because um, it's considered when you, you know, when you Google it, whatever, it'll, it's called a breakthrough feminist novel. However, when The Awakening was written in 18, well, published in 1899, the word feminist didn't exist. So I'm going to kind of delete, delete that idea and set the tone for this book. It follows a life of a woman named Edna Pointillier. And for those of you who speak French, yes, I've probably botched this, and I apologize. J'excuse, I think is what one says. So, um, you know, close your eyes and picture this. We're in the South. It's the late 1800s, and we find Edna, who I would say is a, is, uh, a woman who today we would describe as, you know, depressed, but back then maybe she has a bit of melancholia. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's married to a successful businessman, Leonce. She's the mother of two. And they're living this kind of think Edith Wharton in the, the South, in the Gulf, in a Creole community, upper class Creole community. By that sort of somewhat restricted, restrained? Yes. This is the Gilded Age uh, you know, think corsets and women, you know, the woman of valor, the woman knowing knowing her place. And that uh, is uh, the place of being a dedicated woman uh, to her husband and to her children. Uh, this is a woman who never thinks about sex, who is just uh, silent in the background, just like a beautiful piece of porcelain. Virtuous. Yes. Quiet quiet, very quiet, has no point of view, and is completely dedicated to uh, the family and the running of the household. And I'm guessing at some point in the book, that takes a little bit of a turn. It takes a huge turn. Our, our Edna, while on a vacation uh, on a, um, at a resort in the Gulf of Mexico called um, Grand Isle, she has an awakening at and I think we all have these at certain points of our lives. I call them these aha moments where the entire trajectory of your life changes. 
And for Edna, it's sitting, you know, on the porch in the evening, thinks super duper hot, you know, pre-air conditioning and all that. And she's like, uh, this isn't working. Mm. You know, she says it much more gracefully than I do. Uh, and she's also attracted to this younger guy. At, and she feels the spark of desire. And it feels pretty good. Uh, <laughs> uh, but clearly, as a married woman, she can't she can't go there. Uh, but this opens the door to her questioning her place in society. And again, this is something where anyone can find themselves in this position as they grow and go out into the world. You question who you are in relation to everyone else. And do these societal norms, do they make sense to you? Right. And this is exactly what she does. So after, you know, and sometimes when you go on vacation, I don't know, sometimes just leaving Duval County and having your eyeballs on something else, you have a different perspective. Oh, for sure. It's like when you come back with a whole new like wardrobe of stuff you bought that you would never wear in your real life. <laughs> oh, now that's a story. We need to discuss that. We're okay. putting a pin in that but Anne's closet. Um, but um, exactly. You just you know, you come back with a completely different identity and perspective. And this is what happens to Edna. So what does she do? Well, she stops taking her Tuesday visitors, you know, that are to come in the house and chat. Uh, She kind of loses touch with all the appropriate friends and ends up hanging out with, let's just call her an eccentric, you know, a, a woman who also has chosen her own path. And you just don't do this. You just don't. So much so that her husband thinks she's gone insane. And this is why the book kind of retroactively is labeled, you know, feminist, because Mm -hmm. um, she's breaking with tradition. She's breaking with marriage. But at the time, critics thought this was a very vulgar, unhealthy, you know, representation of womanhood. Right. Even one of my rock star authors was like, uh, you know, this author has a problem. And that was Willa Cather. She didn't like it, shockingly. Uh, So. And that's what I, I love books that push the envelope. And this book certainly does. And P.S. It's a very short, short story. So that's kind of nice, too, what, you know, in this busy, busy short world. Short month. Yeah. In a short story. Yeah. So how can people participate if they want to read, if they want to join? Sure. So um, Tuesday, February 13th, 6.30 p.m. at San Marco Books and More. You can come and um, visit. Uh, sign up at chapterandnotes.com. And if you can't come in person, I also have an online uh, book club as well that takes place that same morning at, at 11 a.m. I know there's a one involved. I'm going with 11. Uh, but just to tell you, this is the third time I've read this book, Anne. I've read it at different times in my life. It's a different book every time. Isn't that cool? Do you reread? Yes, I do. And it's uh, always interesting to see how your life has changed. You view the characters so differently um, mm-hmm. at a different age. It's And you get a completely different read. I agree 100%. Plus the fact you a little bit forget. So... <laughs> It's like yes. it's all new to me. Yay. Well, that's true too. <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right in all seriousness. It's so interesting how we bring our own experiences to each story we read. And that is the case. This third read, it's a totally different book. It's amazing. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being here, talking about the book. And thanks for doing the uh, book club that you do. Oh, it's such a pleasure. You don't even know. I just absolutely love it. We'll be back in just a minute. WJCT Public Media and the Jacksonville Music Experience presents Black Opry Review live on the WJCT soundstage on Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. A celebration of the diversity and versatility of country music, the Nashville-based collective has been praised by Rolling Stone, NPR, and more. Tickets and more information at jacksmusic.org slash events. I'm Scott Tong. So-called red teams burrow into the darkest corners of AI to find out what the bots are capable of in order to fix systems and protect us. But the job can take a toll. There are things that people of good conscience wouldn't even want to think or say, and that's exactly what the job requires. Next time in Here and Now, today at 2 
on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, award-winning journalist Michelle Norris joins us to talk about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. In it, she shares conversations she's collected from more than 500,000 entries, people from around the world who shared with her their most honest, intimate, and revealing thoughts about race and identity. Join us today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. It's South Carolina's turn in the spotlight. We unpack the results of their Democratic primary. Also, according to a new poll, roughly four in 10 Americans named foreign policy as a top issue in the presidential race this year. How might the news overseas shape the result here in November? Two sides of the 2024 election coin, next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. The oral storytelling tradition is alive and well in Jacksonville through the ongoing series Untold Stories. Produced live on stage at the Florida Theater, Untold Stories offers a platform for the unique and inspiring stories of First Coast residents. The winter performance is Thursday, February 15th. And here with a closer look is director of Untold Stories, Barbara Colicello. Good morning. Good morning. And storyteller and musician Krishna Achoth. Good well, morning. Thank you for being here. Barbara, it's often said that everyone has a story, um, but not everyone is a natural storyteller. So how do you train people and coach people to find their stories and to tell them in a way that's compelling? Well, to begin with, when you're going to put someone on the Florida, Florida theater stage by themselves, I, I look for a certain um, personality. So not only am I looking for interesting stories, but also I'm looking at someone's body vocabulary. Mm. Um, when you have about a 10-week process, and if you have a lot of tension in your body, um, that's somebody that I really want to work with in class or someone who comes to one of the story slams. But everyone does have a story, and it's just some people know how to put it together. But the 10-week process, we're really shaping those stories and curating those moments. It's a lot about editing. And, and then it's also a lot about getting it on its feet because people, some people like to write it, and that's a different voice, your reading voice. So I'm encouraging them constantly, put the paper aside, this is your story. It's image, you have to go from image to image to image, mm. not word and paragraph and paragraph. Interesting. See it, see it. And if you see it, we see it. That's a great, that's a great tactic. I, I never even thought that that was an approach, but for people who haven't been, this is a, there's no lectern that you're standing behind. You are out no. there on the stage just with your uh, microphone, you know, headset and, and your body. Yeah. And it's embodied storytelling. And we've been having a lot of fun, uh, this particular cast, because uh, some of them are musical. They have instruments. Someone is singing throughout her story because <laughs> I encourage them. I'm like, sing that, you know, bring us to the moment. And um, that seems to work. Now, Krishna Ashrath, you are an artist. You're a teacher. You're a musician. You're also a storyteller. Um, talk about how you find your voice in music and in, in onstage storytelling. Oh, for me personally, it has been an even more of an evolutionary process because um, I was a storyteller back in season two. And thanks to uh, Bab's wonderful training, I learned so much about how to make a story. I was always been a musician and an artist, but the, the whole art of storytelling was fascinating to me because like Bab said, you have to create a scene and you start out with, st uh, it's like a songwriting. You you think you're going to write out all these paragraphs and story, but then you have to break it down and condense it into a relatable message that is crisp and short and uh, and more like acting out than reading a paragraph. So uh, the storytelling uh, was an incredible experience for me personally, but now with the music, it is even more so because... Uh, 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 we have always had music in the storytelling uh, component, uh, but music was a separate, distinct component. 
uh, of course, it was played um, in uh, coherence uh, to the theme of the night. But this time, we are doing it differently, where music's going to be more integral. Uh, uh, and, and, and so I'm spending time with the storytellers as a musician, getting to know them, getting to know their stories, the mood, the temperature. So you're uh, writing songs alongside them f yeah. specifically for those pieces. Yes, there's yeah. going to be a lot of improvisation. That's what I wanted different um, uh, to do different this season um, because I felt like we were such a connected unit and then the musicians would drop in. Uh -huh. Whereas now I engage, I'm gauging the musician from the beginning, come to a rehearsal, you know, and it, yesterday just was... Uh, amazing. You had a rehearsal yesterday. We had a rehearsal yesterday, and it wasn't a planned rehearsal. Just one storyteller saying, I really want to, can we have some other people here when I'm, I, I want to get practice telling the story in front of other people. I'm like, absolutely. And so everyone was able to come, and, and Krishna was able to come um, with John, mm -hmm. uh, who, the guitarist, who's excellent. And they would listen to the stories, and there's, they'd say, well, we're thinking we have this theme, and this theme goes with your story. Do you want to listen to it? And this, and almost every single storyteller said, oh, I love that. So that's what they're going to hear when they come on um, the stage, when I introduce them. So how many performers, and how can people go if they want to go? There will be six storytellers, and all you have to do is go to the Florida Theater website Look for untold stories. You have to go to you have to you have to go to the events and um, you'll see untold stories. Uh, and you could buy tickets directly from their site. You can go to the box office. You can call the box office. Um, Cheaper at the box office. Yes, a little bit. And you can call and yeah, because you don't pay the ten dollar fee. Well, Barbara Colicello and Krishna Achath, thank you so much for being here and talking about untold stories. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock or find today's show at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Join us Tuesday when we discuss how homeowner insurance crisis is causing mortgage rates to soar. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.